Hey there, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network. I'm Burke Allen, live in Washington, D.C., and the show is a service to our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. And I am tickled to get together with my friend Chris Ellis. Now, you may not recognize the name Chris Ellis, but if you've watched movies or television shows any time in the last three decades or so, I guarantee you have seen Chris Ellis. He's been in huge films and hundreds, literally hundreds of TV shows. He is the quintessential character actor. I want to say thank you, Chris Ellis, for uh, uh, for getting up reasonably early, even during a pandemic, because I know you are not an early riser. Oh, uh, I've no, I've never rolled out early, and the only thing, the only thing that I have not just loved about the industry in which I have found my way amid the world's ruin is the hours because on my own, I'll sleep until 10 o'clock every morning. Whereas my wife and my cat are up at 6 a.m. Growing up in, in Memphis, Tennessee, in this great music city, and I know you're a music fan, were you surrounded by that? And did you realize all this great music was oozing up around you in Memphis as a kid? It was a, a force of nature when I was a kid and a source of municipal pride. And it probably still is. It is in my DNA. Certainly in the the 50s and and the better part of the 60s, it was still pretty segregated. You had the Stax stuff uh, and you had the Reverend Al Green and and all those guys. And then you you had the the Elvis contingency on the other side. Did did it feel segregated to you or did did everybody blend together back then? It was distinctly segregated. And that even more than Elvis is part of my DNA, my psychological DNA. I had a conscious feeling of a sense of otherness in half the population. And that started for me, given my age, with the deaths of Swerner Cheney and Goodman, about whom the movie Mississippi Burning is a fictional rendering. And when I was 14 years old, that was the first consciousness I had of civil rights activist violence. And it culminated, of course, in 1968 with the death of Dr. King. And that stamped itself on, on, on a generation, on my generation. Were you in Memphis when Dr. King was killed? Yeah. More to the point, I was in Memphis when Dr. King was marching. And the dean of St. Mary's Episcopal Church, in which I was a lifelong communicant, led the clergyman's march in support of the garbage strikers. And we were all Episcopals. We considered ourselves genteel and, and refined. When the dean did that, it cost him his job. I had the feeling that I should have been in the trenches. I wanted to be part of those marches, and I was afraid to. And I don't know what I was afraid of, but I was just afraid of getting in the thick of it all. And so when Dr. King died, I was like, I I don't think it mattered more to me because I was in Memphis than it might have mattered to you. But in terms of popular culture, that, that, that notion of segregation produced some great music. Sure did. And you were right in the middle of it, too. Chris Ellis is uh, is our guest today on the podcast, and he's a fine actor. But he, we're talking about his early days in Memphis and and being right there in the middle of the civil rights movement, the assassination of Dr. King, his, his marches there in Memphis. And as as we kind of look around at at 2020, 
and what happened this past summer with the, the protests and the riots. And are we making any headway at all on this stuff? You know, well, I, I, I'm going to say yes. It may be naive. I may be Pollyanna when I say that, but I think um, as a culture, there's a, a, a thread of decency. There's a line beyond which we cannot step. I don't think I have seen the, the country I live in more divided than it is right now. And I have a neighbor next door who was a friend for 22 years. And because of politics, he stopped speaking to me altogether about two years ago. And it's okay if we vote differently. We were friends for 22 years, and suddenly, immediately, that all changed. But you know what? I think we are a decent people. And notwithstanding how sort of ugly it got this summer and how ugly it's become politically and nationally, I cling to the hope, I continue to nurture the hope that we're better than all that and that our better angels will prevail. All this ugliness will pass. This rancor, or it, you know, I won't have anything to do with it. I'm, I can't. I'm too old. I, I'm going to leave the fights for the younger guys. Well, you know, you're you're a guy who hails from the mid south, and you've done lots of work in in the Midwest, and and you know, an awful lot of parts of this country where folks look at California, and you guys get uh, you know sort of painted with these broad brushstrokes of the Hollywood elite and being totally out of touch with what it's like out there in the real world. What say you to those charges? I was just talking about that with my son. And he was telling me that he had some difficulty explaining to classmates in college what I did for a living. Because you th- you have the understandable, uh, you must live a life of extraordinary glamour and privilege and celebrity and that your name is a household name. And when my son would say that my dad's an actor, they would say, oh, really? Who is he? And they couldn't quite put it together that there is a whole culture, a whole subculture, in, certainly in Los Angeles, I suppose in New York, of people who go to work in the morning and come home at night and live in suburbs like ours and uh, whose faces and names are not necessarily familiar, but who have houses and cars and children in college. And it's just been for me a career, but it has not been the stuff of A-list celebrities. So that's, uh, I think the misconception that I have encountered is that people whom I have met, especially when I'm working in various parts of the country, just don't put it together that you can be a, a Hollywood actor and not be a big star. A household name. <laughs> now, you've rubbed up against a lot of those folks, though. And, and uh, if, if we look back at uh, Chris Ellis's career, your first big movie that, that at least I became aware of you, I mean, you're in this movie alongside one of the biggest stars, arguably, of the last uh, 30, 40 years. You were in Days of Thunder with, uh, with Tom Cruise. And you had what I think may just be the best character's name <laughs> of any character ever. And do you remember your character's name from Days of Thunder? <laughs> Absolutely. I played a guy named Harlan Hoogerhide. Harlem Hoogerhide is correct. Harlan right. Hoogerhide. That's a name ordinarily associated with the covering of cheap furniture. <laughs> but uh, I love that name. The character didn't get too much in the movie. But, oh, man, that was... Uh, 
That was my first trip to the rodeo in the big leagues. I always remember that movie with fondness. And before you even got there, though, and this is the the part of the story that, that people don't know about Chris Ellis, I mean, you'd knocked around and worked it hard for, uh, what, 10 years before that? I know you, you uh, had a small part in a movie with Angie Dickinson in the late 70s and then uh, worked out in New York for a long time, but I'm sure there were a lot of ramen noodles nights before you got to Days of Thunder. Uh, ramen noodles nights, that's a good way of putting it. I always describe it as bone-grinding poverty. Yeah, I dug around New York City trying to find my way amid the world's ruin and was so, it was so discouraged by it and had given it up so many times but just stayed in the game long enough and eventually crumb was tossed to me by the producers of that tom cruise movie days of thunder what kind of jobs did you do to put food on the table while you were trying to make it as an actor in new york oh i slung cocktails in every restaurant in manhattan and uh i taught english as a second language at a school for russian jewish refugees uh some international Jewish Resettlement Organization in Manhattan did performed a lot of social services back in the old Soviet Union days for people that they had gotten out of the Soviet Union, and one of the services provided was English instruction, and that that was the only day job I ever had that I ever loved, which I'm proud to have been a part of, was teaching English to people who needed just enough English to be able to get through a job interview, be able to know how to ask directions. And I loved those people. I had a wonderful time doing that. And I I, I would do it still if, if they'd let me. What an interesting side hustle. That would be a good gig. And, it was. And when you, got, when you got Days of Thunder, after that, you know, looking at your resume, I don't want to say the floodgates opened, but you did a lot of big movies and i'm not going to ask you about all of them but i mean we're talking films that to this day you can still see out there you know my cousin Vinny and apollo 13 we played deke slayton and you know that thing you do con air uh, you know being godzilla armageddon october sky i mean the list goes on and on did you ever need a side hustle again after days of thunder or has acting been your steady income ever since no tom cruise pulled me out of the chorus and thanks be to god i've never had to have a responsible job since then. It was my great good fortune. Here's something else that a lot of people do not quite understand, and even people in the business. I got my first big movie was 16 Weeks Work with Tom Cruise. And I thought, I'm a made man, but you're not a made man. And I don't know if you're ever a made man. Well, maybe Tom Cruise is. But the people who did the casting for Days of Thunder also did the casting for my cousin Vinny. I'd gotten along well with them, so they called me in for my cousin Vinny. And thanks be to God, my straw was drawn for that movie. And then the same people called me up when they needed something, you know, somebody to walk on a small role in, in yet another movie. And the, uh, the fortuitous circumstance was that I just started working and kept working. Chris Ellis is our guest today, fine character actor, fine human being, proud to call him my buddy, and talking about his long career, 30-plus years now in front of the camera in some really big movies like The Island, The Devil's Rejects, Fun with Dick and Jane, the Transformers movies, Live Free and Die Hard. Uh, 
you got to do the Dark Knight movie a couple of years back. But I want to go back to, to Tom Cruise, who gave you your start, and and wonder if if there's a, a story or a memory from all that time ago with that guy that, that might give us a little insight on what Tom Cruise is really like. Oh, yeah. Because he's much maligned, you know. I got a couple of stories, too. Here's, let me, here's my favorite story about that movie and that guy. He was 27 years old, and the world was his. He never jumped on my sofa. Right. Say what you want about goofy religion. Here's the Tom Cruise that I saw. The organization Make-A-Wish contacted Tom Cruise on behalf of the family of a 14-year-old girl who was very seriously ill and whose one dream was to meet Tom Cruise. And he caused her family to be brought to Daytona where we were shooting Days of Thunder. And they stayed for about three days, three or four days. And on, and he would spend every minute with them. And he was in every shot. He wasn't in every scene. He was in every shot. And he was all over that movie. And he spent every spare minute with that family, keeping that movie star smile on for 72 hours. And on day three, we did not work. We were taking the day off because we were going to work all night. We had a night shoot. Tom did not sleep. Tom ordained that Disney World would close for a few hours. They had the entire park to themselves. He took the girl to Disney, Disney World. And then the, this family had to leave at about, it was about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. They were at the set, and they, it was time for them to leave because they were to leave Daytona the following morning. Before they left, they took one little last round of photographs. After everybody, after they left, and there was, you know, everybody was appropriately observant of the solemnity of the occasion because they were leaving. They were not going to come back. Now, keep in mind, Tom Cruise has been exhausted throughout this ordeal, but he's been a good guy about it, and there was no profit in it for him. It was only a decent thing to do for somebody else. And then when they were gone, Tom was leaning against one of the race cars against one, this car I was standing beside. He was leaning on the hood, looking overwhelmed. And the assistant director said, what is it? And Tom told this story, which I heard him say. During that last little tableau of photographs, he was kneeling beside this young girl's wheelchair. And she turned around behind her to her mother and said to her mother, in a few weeks, you're going to feel somebody tap you on the shoulder and turn around and not see anybody. It's going to be me telling you everything is just fine. And when Tom told that story, he broke down. Now, he, he, he was exhausted, and he gets a pass for that. But then he said, if you don't mind, I'd like to go home. And so the, the suits had a little chat for about 30 seconds, and then they said, everybody go home, taking the night off. Wow. Say what you want about Tom Cruise and his goofy religion. He did a really decent thing that I witnessed with these. I'm pointing at my eyes. And for that, he gets a, a lifetime pass. That's what I remember about Days of Thunder. What a story. Chris Ellis, who starred alongside Tom Cruise as the legendary Harlem Hoogerhide. <laughs> and Thunder. when you say Harlem Hoogerhide, you need to go, you need to <laughs> Get the snort, snort in there a little bit. Yeah. That NASCAR snort. <laughs> 
So just a couple of years later, you find yourself uh, playing Deke Slayton in what has become a legendary movie, Apollo 13, with Tom Hanks and uh, Gary Sinise and Kevin Bacon. What what was that experience like? It started out uh, physically awkward. I was given a part in this movie playing one of the guys in Mission Control. And then they called me about a week later and said, tell you what, we're going to bump you up and you're going to play Deke Slayton. And so instead of working five weeks, you're going to work five months. But Deke was one of the original seven Mercury astronauts, if you remember. He said, to play Deke, you got to lose that belly. So they said, starting tomorrow, you're going to have a trainer. And so they sent me into this trainer who was pinching my, my arms and my, my belly roll with calipers and making acute measurements. And he put me on a cruel diet and a regimen of exercise. And every day I had an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening of anaerobic exercise. And I got to eat stewed Kleenex and half a grapefruit every day. But I I lost 25, 30 pounds before we started shooting. But but then I got to be Deke Slayton. And I'm of an age. I'm, I'm old enough. Maybe you are too, young fella. I can remember the original Mercury 7 astronauts. I remembered Deke Slayton, who unfortunately died about six months before we started filming. But for me, it was on a league with working with the Beatles. Because you know, some of those guys, the real guys, were on the movie set. Jim Lovell. And a lot of this, you know, astronauts who were just in town stopped by. Dave Scott, the guy who shot golf balls on the moon. And the guys... The the real guys from Mission Control, two of those guys were our technical advisors, and they had been at NASA throughout the 60s and 70s. They had seen it all, and they, those guys were tough guys. How great is that? One of our technical advisors in Apollo 13, Jerry Griffin, was the guy who opened the capsule door after the fire during the dry run for Apollo 1. And I said, what was that like? And he said, bad day. These guys didn't have anything to prove. You know, he didn't have to amplify it with rhetoric. These are the guys who had really been up against it. And those were the guys with their slide rules and their little stations and mission control that got a man to the moon and safely home. There have to be some times, Chris, when you look back at those experiences and you go, man, how fortunate am I to do this for a living where I get to interact with people like that? Hey, I thought when I was a kid, it might be thrilling to work with a movie star. But what is abiding for me is I work with guys that got somebody to the moon and back safely. That's still, that just jazzes me. I've been to the rodeo enough times that movie stars don't jazz me anymore. Although the singer from the sixties, Johnny Mathis, goes to the same periodontist I go to. And I must <laughs> I must say, I passed him in the office the last time I was a periodontist, and there was a frisson of thrill. Ooh, that's Johnny Mathis. But no, I've, been, I've seen enough movie stars. The, the dew is off that rose. But I have been very blessed that I worked with some real NASA guys, including some astronauts. And I worked with a guy named Homer Hickam in October Sky. Our mutual buddy, Homer. That guy... Just It just thrills me that I worked with the real Homer Hickam. My late father-in-law 
was um, professor of astrophysics at MIT. He was the professor of the engineering department, and astrophysics was his sport. And he was just like a, he was as giddy as a schoolgirl when I was doing October Sky because he knew all about Homer Hickam. Yeah, in that world, you know, Homer is like Bill Nye the Science Guy. He is a rock star in that world and, and just about the nicest, you know, most humble, gracious human being that you could ever expect. Yeah. Lovely man. And he was that kid who was looking up at Sputnik in 1957 as I was. And he looked up in the sky and said, I want to do that. And then he did. That was Jake Gyllenhaal's first big movie as well. And, and I wonder when yeah. you play Principal Turner in that movie, when you saw him and those other kids, was there anything special in, in Jake Gyllenhaal that you thought, hmm, this kid's going to make it? Or was he just uh, another young actor? There was that about Jake, which I thought was serious and mature for a 17-year-old kid. But I didn't get the feeling that his star was going to rise as it has done. You know, the other kids worked as well, but Jake just took off. And I rejoice in Jake. He's a, he's a lovely man. And I've seen him once only since that movie. I saw him in a restaurant in, New, in Los Angeles. And it was like meeting family again. He's such a lovely and gracious guy. And he's done great work since then, too. Everything, uh, my son will watch anything Jake is in. You know, you, you mentioned something there, Chris, that I think is, is very different from what you do for a living. You, you talked about it like a job. It's a nine-to-five job for you or thereabouts. You know, you go, get up, go to work in, in the morning and come home after, after work. But your jobs, you know, you're not going to the factory and you're working there for 30 years or five years or a year. You're in and out of these things in a matter of weeks. And so although you've worked with, Tom Hanks and Gary Sinise and, you know, Tom Cruise and Jake Gyllenhaal and the list just goes on and on. Leonardo DiCaprio, you work with them for a short amount of time and then you spin off into into other things. And I think for for a lot of us out here, we sort of we get the perception that, well, those Hollywood folks, they're all hanging out at the same time. They run into each other at the grocery store and they they're they're buddies forever. But it's really not like that, I I would gather. No, it's not. And I. I've worked with a few people a few times and you, you, you get familiar, but that's it's right. You don't necessarily play golf with them every Saturday morning. Although I must say when I was doing Apollo 13, we had the feeling that the movie was going to be a, a significant movie while we were making it. Sometimes, you know, and sometimes you don't know. And sometimes you're disappointed. Sometimes you're surprised. But we had the feeling while we were working on Apollo that this was going to be a significant cinematic achievement. Some heavy hitters were involved in it, but it was also a wonderful story. And it was told beautifully. And now I think it's Ron's best movie. But the handful of guys in mission control, drones, drugs, got together in January after we had wrapped in December, we got together and said, we've had a wonderful run here on this movie. Let's have lunch. I don't want to let go of this wonderful experience. So we all got together and had lunch, half a dozen of us, five, six, seven of us. And we said, let's do this again next Thursday. And that was January of 1995. Since that time, 
except Thanksgiving, we've always had lunch together, about half a dozen guys from Apollo 13. If we're working, you get a pass. If I'm, if I'm in Maine for the summer, you get a pass. Not one time has anybody from that group said, you know what, I'm not really interested in doing it this Thursday. You guys have a good time. Unless you're sick or working or out of town, you're at that Thursday lunch. Is that right? Oh, that's great. And we've done that with Zoom these past several months. Hey, you mentioned Ron. You, uh, Ron Howard directed that film, and, and I, I think he, along with, with Tom Hanks, are the two guys that have the reputation, or two of the guys that have the reputation sort of globally as being good guys, good salt-of-the-earth guys, and, and they've had that reputation for a gazillion years. Now, I don't want to ask you to tell stories out of school, but what was your, uh, what was your takeaway from Ron Howard and, and Tom Hanks? And you work with Tom Hanks a couple of times. Yeah, I worked with Tom a few times. It's all true. It's all true about both of them. And I wish I could say things like, oh, he's always borrowing money. Uh, <laughs> no, both those guys are just lovely people through and through. And I wish I could say I've seen them with their hair down and it's not always that. No, no. Everything you want to believe about them both is true. You had, uh, you know, a variety of roles down through the years. Like in The Dark Knight Rises, you were Father Riley. And traditionally, though, if I go through the, the Chris Ellis resume, there's a common thread through a lot of, of these characters. You know, you're, uh, you're the tough guy cop. You're the tough guy uh, military man, the tough guy banker. Is there a... Sheriff Cracker Von Peckerwood. Sheriff Cracker Von Peckerwood, yes. Yeah, you got a lot of badges on, a lot of badges, a lot of breasts. Senator, Senator Cracker Von Peckerwood, Lieutenant Cracker Von, General Cracker Von Peckerwood. And my first theatrical agent said to me, uh, I was part of a poker game with this guy. And he said, I want you to start working with me, but you're 10 years older than all my clients. Now look at them. They're all pretty young boys. And he said, look at all those guys. They're pretty. And they've got their hair and their waistlines. Some of them, when their waistline, when their hair starts going, their career is going to go. Your hair is already going and your waistline is growing. So cut out this mid-Atlantic dialect, this theatrical nonsense, because I want to put you to work not in theater, but in film and television. And I want you to be a good old boy. Because you can be one of the guys if you're that good old boy. That's going to be your ticket in. Lean on that. And the fourth audition he sent me on was for the role of Harlan Hoogerhide. <laughs> Harlan Hooger in Days of Thunder. And the second, the next, the, the very next audition was for playing JT in, the, in uh, My Cousin Vinny. So I started out playing a tooth-sucking redneck. <laughs> and I sort of got branded into that, but I made a living. You know, I've done a little, a little variety, but not very much. There's a significant thread in my resume. If you're looking for a Chris Ellis movie, look for a Southern good old boy. Tough guy. Principal Turner, tough guy. You know, there, there are a lot of tough guys. Yeah, they are stern, yeah. And are you cool with that? Or did you ever at some point go, oh, I want to do other things? Or when the checks came, you went, yeah, you know, I can be uh, uh, Von Peckerwood. No problem. I, do, I, I don't think it ever bothered me. I don't think I ever said, yes, it did. But it didn't bother me for about 25 years. And it didn't bother me when, it, when I said to my agent, 
look, I'm not interested in, in auditioning for this part. Look at my resume. I've been playing this guy for 25 years. If they want me to play this, tell them to give me a call. But I'm not going to audition anymore. And I don't audition at all anymore. But um, there, there got to be a point when I thought, why am I continuing to audition if I'm still going in for the role of Sheriff Cracker Von Peckerwood? If I were going in for the part of Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt, I, oh, yeah, I get that. But if I'm playing the same thing over and over again, why do I have to keep proving it? Well, that's the business. You know, that's the business we're in. But there got to be a point where I said, no, they know what I can do. If they want me, tell them to call me. There's enough tape of me doing that already uh, with just a slightly yeah. different uniform. Once in a while, I get to play something non-Southern. I went to a, uh, an audition for some TV show. This, and I was auditioning for the role of a Republican congressman. Nothing else was said about him. And so I said when I walked in, listen, guys, here's what I've prepared. And here's what I'm prepared to, to do for you. And if I get the role, I'm going to read it like this. Is that all right with you? Because if you don't want a Southerner playing this part, there's four real good actors out in the lobby waiting. But if you hire me, this is what I'm going to do with it. And so I went in and day one, first scene, the master shot of some scene. I don't remember the circumstance, but I, did, I read it with my natural Memphis dialect. And as soon as we shot the master, the director who had been at that audition walked up to me privately and said, can you do something about that Southern accent? And I said, listen, for the money you're paying me, I can add colors to the chameleon. But, you know, I did say this is what I thought I would do. And do you want to shoot the master all over? And she said, oh, never mind. And she never said another word to me during that one episode of one TV show. But <laughs> I, I told them that's what they get, and that is what they got. Chris Ellis is our guest on the Big Time Talker podcast today, sponsored by Speaker Match. We talked about all these movies that you've done, and, and you've worked consistently several times a year, every year for the last 30 years. But you also come in, and, and you've done a ton of guest shots on all sorts of TV shows, everything from The West Wing to The X-Files to uh, NCIS and uh, you know CSI, New York, Criminal Minds, uh, Ghost Whisperer, Veronica Mars. I could go on and on. When uh, The Office, you did The Office. When you come in as a guest star or a guest on one of these TV shows where those folks have a different experience than, than movies that we talked about earlier, where you're with people for a number of days and then you go your separate ways. You're sort of parachuting into a tight knit work family that's been together for a long time. What's that like? And how is that different when you interact with, with folks that have, have been together for a long time and, and sort of how do you navigate those relationships? Sometimes it's awkward, and sometimes it's a very pleasant experience. As you accurately put it, you're parachuting into a situation that already exists. And these people are familiar with everyone else, and here you come, and you're like a piece of furniture that's going to swap out next week. It's never been a problem in the execution of my obligations, but it has always been been noteworthy that there to varying degrees it might be that you're on a an eight day shoot so you're doing a one hour lawyer show or forensic show those shoots are eight days long 
it might be, in my experience, one time it was three days before anybody said one word to me. And when the director would say cut, the, the people in the show would all turn and talk to each other and didn't even notice that I was there until about the third day. And then one of them introduced himself and it was an amenable social relationship thereafter. Another time I was on a show, the show was called Cold Case. And on day one, one of the regulars came up to me and said, I appreciate that you're walking into a situation here that is unfamiliar among people who are familiar with each other. So let's get to know each other so we can work together better. And every single member of the, the, the regulars in the show Cold Case went out of their way to include me in their off-camera social conversations and in discussions about what we were doing in every scene. It's, you know, that was an extreme case of hospitality. In fact, that warranted a letter to the casting director of thanks. It's not always quite that warm, but it, it is certainly a situation where you're the new kid in school. You've done so many of these. You may not have a clear recollection of this, but I have to ask about it. As you know, uh, uh, with Homer Hickam and I, we're both native West Virginians. We're West Virginia expats. But you did a guest shot on a series uh, whose star is also uh, a fellow West Virginian. show called Alias, and the star of that show is Jennifer Garner. And uh, Jennifer, beloved amongst West Virginians, because she still comes back and frequently contributes to charities back there in the Mountain State. And, uh, and I wonder if you have any recollection of meeting Jennifer Garner or what that experience on Alias was like. Let me t- I'm so glad to hear you say that, because that is one of the stories that I tell about how the good guys sometimes prevail. When you take your last shot on a TV or movie, Your last shot is called your martini shot. The last shot of the day is called the martini shot. But when it's your last shot in the project, it is custom, not universally observed, but almost universally observed for the director, the assistant director to go, okay, that's a picture wrap for Chris Ellis, everybody. And everybody gives you a a courteous round of applause. Bye-bye. It's been great. See you around. In Alias, that was not observed. And, they, you know, I didn't, that's okay. I didn't want to date him. I just was there to do a job. I did the job. I finished the job. And I turned around to walk out. And I was, and we were in a soundstage. And I walked about 50 yards. And I was almost at the door. And Jennifer Garner ran up and caught me and turned me around as if I were a miscreant child and grabbed my shoulders as if she were about to scold me for something. And she said, I didn't know you were finished. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I hope we can work together against them. And I'd never realized that she had it in her to be so gracious that anybody did. She didn't owe me any of that. She was number one on the call sheet. She was the big star. And she's the one who took the time to run, chase me down just before I got away and make that little exhortation of courtesy and hospitality that I will remember on my deathbed. C.S. Lewis said somewhere, be aware that little things you do for good or ill may prove years later to have had a profound effect on somebody and 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 have influenced their lives for good or ill. Keep that in mind in all your dealings. 
no matter how insignificant they seem to you. I will remember that job on Alias and Jennifer Garner for that one conspicuous demonstration of courtesy. Of course she's a West Virginia girl. She's got good manners. <laughs> I love that. I love that story. That's fantastic. All right, we're in our remaining moments with my pal Chris Ellis. Uh, before we wrap up, your favorite part of what you do for a living, what do you like the most about it? Sleeping late most of the mornings and waiting for the phone to ring. <laughs> and the toughest part, the part you would, if you never had to do it again, that it would be too soon? Auditioning. Auditioning has always been the hardest part. Uh, do you remember an actor named Michael Jeter? Sure, absolutely. Great he, character. He was from my hometown. I knew him when we were kids. He once said, "What he, uh, his job is auditioning. His vacation is the job. You feel the same way. You know, I, I, once in a while, you turn around, even a, a guy like me who's been a drone. I've been at it for 30 years, but I've been, I've been a drone. But once in a while, I look around a movie set and I think, this is the realization of a dream that I had since I was five years old. How great is that? And, and finally, you know, we're, we're doing this podcast in 2020, which has been one hell of a year for a whole lot of people in a whole lot of different ways. Um, and, uh, you know, every touring entertainer, and when I'm in Los Angeles, you and I usually go out to see music together. Uh, all those guys are off tour. Most airplanes are on the ground and nobody going out on a cruise ship and people that do what you do for a living, that for the most part is also ground to a halt. So I wonder what you think this is going to look like for the movie and television industry coming out of it. Do you have any, uh, any intel as to what this is going to look like as we climb our way back out? Burke, I was talking to you earlier about this Thursday luncheon group that I've had for 25 years. We were just that in the last couple of weeks there is never going to be the old normal this is going to change the film and television industry in ways that are never going to go back and one of the reasons that we said that was because we like most people in the country very often spend our idle days binge watching tv you know network television was built to support commercial enterprises i mean if they if you don't have commercials you don't have west wing you don't have all in the family you don't have tv series that are so much a part of the american culture i don't know how that's going to change i guess everything is going to become pay-per-view and you're going to do it in your on your laptop i have a friend from my hometown whose family owns 1600 movie theaters and she told me that they have two drive-in movies 1598 movie theaters are closed so how does that how's that going to affect their whole life a whole industry i don't know how it's going to happen but i I don't know how it will be but i know that it will be there are going to be changes that will never go back and you know what i think we're resilient as a species we're we are an innately curious species and adaptable, we're going to manage. I'm, I'm not in despair, but what we knew, what you and I knew for most of our lives about popular culture and popular entertainment, live music that you and I 
going to see together. And live theater, how's that going to change? I don't know. But significantly and forever is my guess. I think you're right. And, uh, and, and I also share your optimism. We are resilient and we'll figure it out. But it's going to be a long road back. Chris, thank you for spending some time with me today. It's been too long. It's great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thank you so much for the time you spent with me. My friend Chris Ellis, you'll see him. You'll know who he is now. He is uh, more than just Yvonne Peckerwood. He's my pal, and we appreciate him being on, on the Big Time <laughs> Talker podcast today. Thank you, SpeakerMatch.com, for sponsoring the show. I'm Burke Allen. Wherever you go, whatever you do, make it a great day. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.